You're making things up ahead, Arnold. You're recklessly warping the words of Jesus. Hello, welcome to episode 25 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H, and this is the Health Theater episode. Things up again, kind of. But this time it's helping a dozen people. It's nothing so bad because this time I'm not committing a sin. Hey Arnold, stop making things up again. That, of course, is a song from the hit Broadway play, Book of Mormon, which I'm told is an awesome play that I've never seen, for which I blame my traumatic upbringing. You see, I was raised by a family that loved Broadway theater. The music we heard around the house was all from Broadway shows. Despite all efforts to resist, I had the lyrics to every song for shows like Man of La Mancha or whatever was popular then down pat. As I was older, and Mrs. H and our boys and I would visit my family, we'd be on a never-ending quest to turn off whatever Broadway production was blasting on the speakers. In the end, I developed a visceral response to all things musical theater, which is why I've never seen plays that play directly to my lowbrow sense of humor, including Monty Python's Spamalot and The Book of Mormon. But this reaction isn't solely because of overexposure. It's just the whole notion of supporting a plot with singing and dancing, when what you're really doing is singing and dancing while contriving a story around it. It it seems insincere. It's all just made up. I'm getting better about this, especially when singing and dancing isn't involved, but in general, I still don't like theater. I especially don't like health theater. What's health theater? It's pretending to promote health when the actual theme of your content is more nefarious. What you're actually doing is selling garbage. Let me explain what I mean. Now, thou bleak and unbearable world, thou art base and debauched as can be. And the knight, with his banners all bravely unfurled, now hurls down his gauntlet to thee. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha, my In the play Man of La Mancha, Don Quixote fights windmills he thinks are really evil giants. In the Karma Sense play, Davy H.'s windmill is the healthcare industrial complex. The healthcare industrial complex is what I call the loose confederation of the following. Traditional healthcare providers, such as hospitals and physicians' offices. Manufacturing companies, including Big Pharma, medical device manufacturers, and the food and nutrition companies. Education institutions, such as the universities that do research. The government, who overtly and covertly sets policy. And finally, the media, who conspires to motivate consumer behavior in the direction that's most beneficial to them. The way things work is, the manufacturers fund research by the education and healthcare institutions in hopes of uncovering new benefits for their products. The research community has to play along, even if there's conflicts of interest or they're going to see their funding dry up. Armed with these discoveries, the manufacturers then cajole, really, they're always cajoling, they cajole the media to publicize their findings or lose precious advertising dollars. This increases demand and consumption of the crap and makes people sicker. Meanwhile, our elected representatives subsidize this behavior with artificial economic support in the form of tax breaks, tariffs, and corporate welfare that protects the players from paying for the true cost of their misbehavior. It's the most vicious of cycles, and that's the evil part. But how giant is the healthcare industrial complex? 
The healthcare industry is the fifth largest part of America's economic engine. Looking at this another way, when we're healthy, we threaten a $2 trillion per year business. But that's not all, because that $2 trillion is for the pure play health institutions and represents just a small piece of the healthcare industrial complex pie. A pie, by the way, that's primarily made of high fructose corn syrup. <coughs> now, there are four sectors that earn even more cabbage, but want you to eat less cabbage, than the healthcare sector in the United States economy. And they're all interconnected. You have the manufacturers, which include the pharmaceutical and food processing companies. Then you have the wholesale trade companies that include the middlemen who move the drugs and supplies and foods, etc., to the people who distribute them to the end user. That is another major industry, retail trade, such as drugstores and supermarkets. Then another huge sector is finance and insurance, and health insurance companies fit in there somewhere. Then beyond that, you have restaurants, educational institutions, and the media, who are a bit players in the overall scheme of things, but if we add them to the big five and throw in the hundreds of billion dollars that the relevant government agencies, such as Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Agriculture control, it's safe to say that at least 20% of the American gross domestic product, or in technical terms, a crap load, is dependent upon undermining your health. Now, to be fair, killing us isn't exactly a long-term growth strategy for business. But in these days of shareholder value, very few companies are focused on the long term. Their attitude is, let the next CEO worry about his or her own golden parachute. And so we have the premise of our play, and it's time to look at a few of the characters. To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To bear with unbearable sorrow To run where the brave dare not go To ride Introducing the media. And don't worry, this isn't a political rant. I'll keep this focused on the health media. But also remember that the government is a full dues-paying member of the healthcare industrial complex, and so it's impossible to keep politics completely out of it. Back to the media. As I said, in the scheme of things, they're a small player in the healthcare industrial complex. But if we can stretch the windmill metaphor a little further, the media represents the blades. The blades of the windmill are highly visible and frenetic. But when you take the windmill as a whole, they're kind of a lightweight cog in the overall operation. Still, the windmill won't work without the blades. The media's role, in particular, makes me angry. And that's saying a lot. I'm a positive person, and when it comes to being patient, my fuse is several miles long. But the media is in a position to set things right. Yet, for the most part, they choose not to, and this boils my blood. Let's dig into an example. One of the things I do to satisfy my unnatural, irrational, and insatiable curiosity about physical health, mental health, and physiology is read. I read a lot. Websites and magazines. Ebooks and hard copy. Bits and atoms. These periodicals include pop titles like Health, Men's Health, and Cooking Light, as well as more targeted journals such as Nutritional Outlook that focuses on the supplement and ingredient industry, and the American College of Sports Medicine Health and Fitness Journal. I read them all, and as I read them cover to cover, 
even more get put in my mailbox. The only thing that prevents Mrs. H from entering me into one of those hoarder TV shows is that I actually toss them once I'm done. I toss them in the recycling bin, of course. Let's look at one of the examples I already mentioned, the cleverly named Health Magazine. Health has the catchphrase, happy begins here, on its banner. For a dude who wants everyone to be happy, healthy, and to help save the world, this seems like a pretty karma sense mission. And when you look at Health Magazine, the first thing that catches your eye is the cover photo. It's always of a gorgeous, fit, famous woman. The kind of woman everyone either wants to date or be. And for the software developers in the audience, that would be an inclusive or as opposed to an exclusive or. <laughs> nerd humor. The cover model always looks happy, so the magazine must deliver on its promise. But despite the cheesecake on that cover, I'm not the target audience. Still, I read it because sometimes a guy really needs to know which lipstick shade works best with his peaches and cream complexion and should be his go-to autumn color. Also, you guys and my clients come in all ages, sexes, shapes, and sizes, so I like to stand in front of the fire hose of information that you're up against. Then there are the obvious observations that I've made many times before in this podcast as well as in my blog about how the media treats this information. They do things like set up unrealistic expectations for beauty by using celebrities who, even before Photoshop has its way, comes to the photo shoot artificially enhanced. Or they'll imply that you can spot reduce body fat when, without surgery, you really can't. Another trick of theirs is suggesting that certain foods burn fat, and foods don't burn fat, and they don't rev your metabolism. And perhaps most frustrating, because they sound the most convincing, they're those sound bites from research that demonstrates benefits of some superfood. But if you read the primary sources, you see the methods weren't really kosher, and the research was sponsored by the lobbyists who represent the superfoods manufacturers. This discovery brought to you by the National Council of Artificially Colored Fruit-Flavored Sugar. But this is all the usual stuff that you're tired of hearing me whine about. Here's what really grabs my attention. The typical issue of Health Magazine consists of 80 to 120 pages. My unscientific survey of the last three or four issues found that at least one-third of those pages are ads for drugs. Drugs for depression and social anxiety, drugs for diabetes, diabetes. and cholesterol control, drugs for autoimmune disease, restless leg syndrome, toe fungus, and so on and so on. So, one-third of the pages are dedicated to big pharma ads, and of those one-third, Two-thirds of the pages are the disclaimers in boring fine print that explain all the reasons you shouldn't be taking those drugs. They read like a copy of a Colbert Report cheating death segment. You know what I'm talking about. Side effects include Jimmy Crack Corns, increased risk of vampire attacks, and iorrhea. Now, you may not think that a pop health magazine being subsidized by the drug industry is a problem, but consider this. Compared to other countries, American consumers pay the most for pharmaceuticals on a per-prescription basis. Big Pharma attributes this disparity to their development costs and the huge amount of American regulations. Fah! Development costs are immune to borders, and meanwhile, the U.S. is one of the few countries that allows drug companies to set their own prices. In other countries, where healthcare is a basic human right, they negotiate prices using the buying power of the single payer. Finally, 
If all else fails and they don't get the cost down to a reasonable level, other countries leverage their rights to issue licenses that allows the use of an invention, such as a patented drug, without seeking approval from the patent holder on grounds of public interest. So no, it's not regulation that inflates our prices. All those extra shekels we lay out are to pay for lobbying and marketing. Drug companies don't offer a lot of transparency on their budgets, but if you're interested in digging into the weeds, I put a tinfoil hat worthy link up on the show notes from drugwatch.com. Your jaw will drop by how slimy the system is. But for the sake of fairness, the Drug Watch site is uncomfortably missing a lot of primary sorcery at references. I like to believe their mission's pure, but I'd be more satisfied if I knew where they pull some of their statistics from. And I said before, the government clearly has a role, so let's look at that. Our current president campaigned on a promise of addressing this issue. He said it was crazy that the federal government, effectively the world's largest buyer of prescription drugs, was not allowed to negotiate directly with the drug companies to get lower prices. And he boasted that he could save taxpayers $300 billion a year on Medicare on day one. On day 11, he met with big pharma CEOs and emerged from that meeting with the following industry talking point. He's going to oppose anything that makes it harder for smaller, younger companies to take the risk of bringing their product to a vibrantly competitive market. He'd have nothing to do with anything as repulsive as price-fixing by Medicare. One week later, his press secretary said between swallows of gum that they were still on track to try and negotiate prices. So, who knows in the end what they're going to do. But the ball is clearly in the government's court. Back to the media and Health Magazine as our example. You heard the list of types of disorders targeted by the drugs advertised in the magazine. Many of them are lifestyle diseases that could be tackled by adopting some of the suggestions in the magazine's editorial content. Wouldn't it be cool if Health Magazine, at a minimum, linked the lifestyle-related content to the drug? For example, here's a study about eating fish. It says fish helps reduce bad LDL cholesterol and increases good HDL cholesterol. Why not keep that in mind while you're looking at the statin ad featuring the happy, hyperlipidemic grandma making chocolate chip cookies with the kids? Let me rant on one other perpetrator before I let this go. For now. The food companies. About 10% of the pages in health are ads for foods of some kind. As far as health magazine sponsors go, Food companies are second only to Big Pharma. As you'd expect in a magazine called Health, the food ads promote a health benefit to the featured products. Yet only half of them are real food. The rest is for overprocessed fake foods that had their natural nutrition stripped out and replaced with chemical crap. The best example is breakfast cereals. It's a favorite target of one of my guests on episode 14, the Bless the Food Industry's Heart episode with Jackie Oaken. The issue of health that I'm looking at includes ads for Kellogg's Frosted Mini Wheat Cereal. Nutritious wheat for the adult you've grown into. Yeah, nutritious wheat coated with sugar. Here's another ad, Special K Red Berries. What the fuck are red berries? Well, it turns out the FDA won't let Kellogg's call them freeze-dried strawberries because there's much more in them than just strawberries. Now for this rant, I chose to pick on Health Magazine, but you can find the same shenanigans elsewhere, maybe to a different extent, but they're still there. 
Rodale is one of the biggest publishers of health magazines. Their lineup includes Men's Health, Women's Health, Organic Living, and Bicycling Magazine. They all have the problems that I described, only maybe not as egregious. And if websites are your source for health information, you're going to find the same kind of thing, usually in the form of little clickbait ads with provocative pictures and captions like, Four Major Heart Attack Flags, or The Worst Carb After Age 50. And then if TV's your go-to, shows like Dr. Oz also feature plenty of pharma ads as well as fake health food ads interspersed with household cleaning products and personal injury lawyers. So there's really no escape from this, but we'll try and get to it anyway. And again, let's talk a little bit more about the magazines. Most people read magazines like Health for one of two reasons. The first is when they're waiting around in a doctor's office and there's a copy sitting on a table. Publishers give these magazines to doctors' offices for free. This makes the doctor happy. Maybe since you're entertained in the waiting room, you'll be less ornery with the staff. This also makes the publishers happy. It allows them to inflate their circulation and increase what they charge for ads. And the drug companies, they don't care. They're flush with money and they get access to more eyeballs this way. And if one of those ads catches your attention and gets you to ask your doctor about the drug while you're there for the visit, they're ecstatic. It's just more of the symbiotic relationship between the players in the healthcare industrial complex. The second reason people read magazines like this, and it's why they go to all those health media outlets, is because they're interested in the subject. In the case of health magazine, that's women's health, and they're seeking a curated source of information. I don't claim that everything health publishes is crap. At least once an issue, I find an idea that's worth researching. Often the idea ends up being a truly valuable nugget of information that I can use to help my clients. For example, recently I read their Natural Medicine Guide. It's a fairly comprehensive guide on alternative therapies such as acupuncture, mindfulness, meditation, and nutrition counseling. And it does a balanced job of describing the various options and their benefits without heavy-handed selling of specious claims. The discussion on Reiki, a technique in which its practitioners channel positive energy through their hands to their patients, emphasizes that therapy lacks sufficient research, but may be worth a try. Frankly, I'm surprised that the drug companies who seem to subsidize the whole magazine and who can't patent therapies like yoga and massage would allow such an article. It kind of gives me hope. But the potential for influence of pharmaceutical companies on the editorial content of these magazines can't be ignored. Never take what you read in these types of magazines or on the web or on TV at face value. In fact, where your health is concerned, never take anything at face value. Whether it's something you've read, advice from your doctor, or even this foodcast, ask questions. Even if you think you know the answer, it's a great way to get into the head of the person who's trying to advise you. And so ends our in-depth character development of one character in the healthcare industrial complex play, the health media. Our next character is the government and its patrons, the influence peddlers. I want to talk about how this works in the micro level, little g government, and not the big g feds. We already examined where healthcare fits in the U.S. economy. The four biggest sectors in descending order are real estate renting and leasing. They represent about 13 percent. 
and that's followed by these three, finance and industry, state and local government, and healthcare, which all cluster together at about 8 to 9%. Healthcare as a business has come to the rescue of many local governments whose economies would otherwise be in despair. In some cases, healthcare is the sum and total of a city's entire identity. The most recognizable buildings in their skylines proudly display the logo of local healthcare providers. But is this really a point of pride? This segment of the Health Theater episode of the Foodcast examines the phenomenon of the city of medicine and asks whether we should be measuring this distinction with a different yardstick. And to get to this question, I need to tell a story. If you didn't grow up in the technology field, you may not be familiar with this common debate theme. When I first broke into tech, I worked for a company that made graphic art systems. One of my first assignments was on a support hotline that the company established to help engineers in the field fix problems once they ran out of ideas of how to fix the problems themselves. Sometimes these were one-off failures of the equipment and the engineer would just replace a part. Other times, the problems weren't due to failure. They were part of the design. They'd happen consistently under certain conditions and all the part replacement in the world couldn't stop them from happening. In those instances, my role was to work with the product designers to fix their design, come up with a retrofit, and distribute the retrofits so those problems would cease. Field retrofits are an expensive proposition, and no designer ever wanted to be blamed for one. And because of that, we'd inevitably get in a debate as to whether the problem was a bug, in which case it would be fixed, or an undocumented feature, in which case my response to the field engineer and the customer was, sucks to be you. This debate could carry on to ludicrous lengths, once I actually had to argue that smoke consistently coming out of a printer during a pre-launch test under certain conditions was a bug and not an undocumented feature. Eventually I won. Now, let's apply this criteria to the city of medicine concept. Is it a bug or a feature? Exhibit number one, the city of medicine, Durham, North Carolina. Durham has a special place in my heart. I got my undergraduate degree there. It's where I met the love of my life, and it's where I'm completing my health coach certification. In my undergrad days, the building that defined the mighty Durham skyline was a 17-story CCB building. Central Carolina Bank, or CCB, was an old Durham institution before SunTrust bought them out. CCB got its start in 1899, when heirs of the American Tobacco Company created the bank to serve that booming industry. Tobacco was at the center of Durham's economy well into the 1970s, but a perfect storm of tobacco industry diversification, consolidation, and vilification soon drove the company and jobs elsewhere. By the time I got to Durham, the tobacco legacy was on its dying breath. The smell of tobacco on a warm day still filled the air, but downtown Durham consisted of nothing more than abandoned tobacco warehouses and boarded up storefronts. Recently, I went back to Durham for another phase of health coach training. Reminders of the tobacco industry legacy stood firm. Duke's alumni organization is on the American Tobacco Campus. The Hollywood famous Durham Bulls still celebrate the legacy of the Bull Durham brand of tobacco. The warehouses are now shishi condos and upscale shopping malls. Downtown Durham's alive at night. A town where haute cuisine used to mean a run to Del Taco is now an up-and-coming foodie destination. And the newest building dominating the Durham city skyline is the shorter but beefier 15-story 
Duke Clinical Research Institute building. The Duke Clinical Research Institute is part of Duke Health, and as with all things Duke in Durham, has another founder of American Tobacco, J.B. Duke, to thank for its existence. Just around the time I first hung my hat in Durham, Duke and Durham wisely cooperated to build a healthcare superpower as a strategy to prevent the city from becoming another dying southern town. It worked. Durham's population has more than doubled since 1980. 8% of its people work for Duke Health. 15% of the population works for the healthcare industrial complex. Their combined payroll is $1.5 billion annually. Thanks to the very same people who flooded our health systems with cancer, emphysema, and heart disease, the economy booms through the treatment of cancer, emphysema, and heart disease. Durham is now officially known as the city of medicine. But I ask you, is it a bug or is it a feature? Exhibit 2 is a city of medicine, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The sort of reversal of fortunes that we saw in Durham isn't unique. Our nation's chronic disease epidemic bailed out other cities as well. Pittsburgh owes its initial fortunes to the Industrial Revolution. Pittsburgh's best known for its industrial age legacy in the steel industry. Other industries it dominated included aluminum, glass, ships, petroleum, food, computers, cars, electronics, sandwiches that include french fries in the bun, and women who are welders by day and aspiring professional dancers by night. Pittsburgh was also world headquarters to household names like Gulf Oil, Sunbeam, Rockwell, Westinghouse, PPG, and of course, U.S. Steel. Pittsburgh's economy was always larger and more diversified than Durham's, and this is evident in its skyline. With its rivers and skyscrapers, it's a spectacular sight. Most of the buildings carry the legacy of their industrial era past with names like PPG Place and Gulf Tower. But the tallest building in Pittsburgh is the U.S. Steel Tower. In the 1980s, America's spiraling deindustrialization led to massive corporate departures from Pittsburgh and devastating layoffs of both blue and white-collar workers. Financially distressed U.S. Steel sold its iconic skyscraper. Although they're still a tenant, they're not the largest tenant. And as is custom, naming rights went to the organization that occupied the most space. Now the building dons a prominent UPMC sign. UPMC stands for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. UPMC is the largest employer in Pittsburgh with 48,000 employees. In total, healthcare represents 10% of the jobs in the greater Pittsburgh area. That's more jobs than its revered steel industry ever had. Thanks to its industrial past, Pittsburgh still has some of the worst air pollution in the country. Its home county, Allegheny, has the 15th highest cancer risk of all counties in the country. That includes counties in New Jersey. As it relates to other measures of good health, Pittsburgh's population is pretty much on par with the rest of the U.S. That means it has the same chronic disease issues as the rest of the country. On the bright side, Pittsburgh consistently ranks as one of the most livable cities in the world. Sure, having more bars per capita than any other city in America helps it with that ranking. But what also helps is their awesome access to quality health care and the high employment it provides. But I ask you, is it a bug or is it a feature? So we talked about the city of medicine, Durham, North Carolina, and a city of medicine, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The third and final exhibit is just city of medicine. Hat. 
That is, the city of Medicine Hat in Alberta, Canada. I know, Medicine Hat, Alberta isn't really relevant to this episode, but it does have a cool skyline with a giant lit-up teepee. Other than that, it's still Canadian. So never mind, because, you know, Canadians. So here's a question. What if instead of celebrating cities of medicine, we celebrated cities of health? They're out there. There are places in America with superior access to real and fresh food, that have walkable streets, myriads of non-car-dependent transportation options, cultures of physical activity and environments that help people cope with stress. Like their city of medicine counterparts, these towns also happen to have great health care. Healthcare that's both interventional and preventative. And their economies are no slouch either. Don't sell yourself short, Judge. You're a tremendous slouch. Lists of America's healthiest cities abound. They all use different criteria, but the usual suspects rise to the top. For the purposes of this discussion, I'll use Spurlings, which seems to be the arbiter of America's best places. In Spurlings, cities in Northern California, Washington, D.C., Seattle, and Salt Lake City consistently rise to the top of these lists. Sadly, none of them make a big hoopla over it. Their mottos are never city of health. And their websites and marketing materials rarely brag about their status on the list. Instead, they focus on the industries that overtly drive their economies. Not surprisingly, America's cities of health aren't as deeply dependent on interventional health care as their paths to prosperity. If suddenly there was a pill that could wipe away all chronic disease in a single dose, the cities of medicine would be looking for their next opportunity to survive. The city of health would continue to thrive. That magic pill doesn't exist. The health air industrial complex has no incentive to create it, because even though they could charge a crap ton for it, it wouldn't get any repeat business. The next closest thing is superior access to real and fresh food, walkable streets, myriads of non-car dependent transportation options, cultures of physical activity and environments that help people cope with stress. Sound familiar? So one more time, I ask you, regarding the concept of the city of medicine, is it a bug or is it a feature? Here's my pie in the sky call to action on this one. I humbly request that you do something for you and your neighbors. If you agree that our economy is more focused on health care than it is on health, set an intention to do something about it. Contact your local leaders and find out what they're doing to make your town a city of health. Hold them accountable for the decisions they make that don't promote good health or that favor some other priority over personal health. This could be a safety issue. It can be a transportation issue. It's amazing how many day-to-day -day operations affect the health of your town's citizens. Your local government needs to design good health into its systems. Because retrofitting those systems to fix the bugs, that's expensive. Whereas designing it in, that's a feature. It must be nice, it must be nice To have Washington on your side It must be nice, it must be nice to have Washington on your side. Every action has an equal opposite reaction. Thanks to Hamilton, our cabinet's fractured into factions. Try not to crack under the stress we're breaking down. The next character is in my hometown of Washington, D.C., but it's not the government. It's trade association lobbyists. 
When opening my rant about the cities of medicine, I mentioned influence peddlers. In the city of medicine context, those are the people who try and manipulate city planning and policy in a way they see fit. And I can't really blame the people who try and drive a local economy towards healthcare. It's opportunistic, but that opportunity arises elsewhere. It's from the day-to-day -day policy decisions of the U.S. government. In these days of corporations are people, the feds do what they do in reaction to different types of influence peddlers, special interests. Those special interests often come in the form of trade associations. There are literally thousands of them, big and small. And the live theater analogy doesn't even work for them because they're more like a movie with an ensemble cast. The Danny Ocean series would have to get up to Ocean's 20,000 in order to support this cast. You know the ones I'm talking about. AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. Only they don't go by that name anymore. Their official name is AARP. I've been throwing away their membership solicitation letters on a weekly basis ever since I turned 50. I mean, I will do that once I turn 50. AAA, National Education Association, Mortgage Bankers Association, National Association of Security Dealers. Lobbying isn't always the main thing these groups do, but it's often a big thing. Even the National Collegiate Athletics Association, the NCAA, has a lobbying arm. They need to keep the amateur status of all those athletes who bring in all the money. Five in the top ten list of lobbying spending includes, in descending order, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, American Hospital Association, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, American Medical Association, and the Business Roundtable. Some of those clearly have health links, but even the Chamber of Commerce and Business Roundtable influence health policy. The Washington Post has had full-page ads urging Congress to bail on the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, on a near-daily basis since the start of 2017. I gotta admit, I have a certain guilty pleasure when it comes to trade associations. I collect them. I collect them like kids collect Pokemon. I gotta catch them all. And maybe it's not a guilty pleasure. Maybe it's more like guilt by association. Every time I encounter in my reading or while traipsing around the DC area, I traipse a lot. I make a note of them. I take a photo and I log it in a spreadsheet. Weird, I know. And while my obsession with trade association goes beyond the ones related to health and food, I'll just talk about those here, for now. In fact, I'll focus on the ones related to food. There's no central listing that I can find, but in my own personal collection, I've located over 150 trade associations that dedicate themselves to influencing public policy around food. These associations are mostly funded by food companies. This provides the donors two benefits. First, they can pool their resources and pay one mouthpiece to represent them all. Second, they can hide behind the names. So, when you hear that the Corn Refiners Association is lobbying for laws that protect profits above the environment, you don't hold that against Archer Daniels Midland or Cargill, two of the biggest corn refiners. And while they're at it, other associations may step in. The National Confectioners Association on behalf of Hershey's and the National Soft Drink Association on behalf of Coke and Pepsi want to continue to get cheap high fructose corn syrup, so they add their megaphone too. This may or may not drown out the Sugar Association who speaks on behalf of Domino, Florida Crystals, and CNH Sugar, who will all think corn gets enough help, thank you very much. I've taken my list and I've put some arbitrary categories around them. 
What I find is that the processed food industry, associations that support products with ingredient lists and ingredient lists that feature sugar and refined flour, has more trade associations associated with it than any other. 20% of the associations are for processed food. Next in line are meat-related, commodity crop associations such as soy or corn, dairy lobbyists, and then alcohol. Associations with missions that protect the consumer represent less than 5% of my list. Now, my list is not sorted by each association's budget yet, but I'm willing to bet that big meat and big sugar, big soy and big corn way outmuscle big broccoli and big food safety. Some of the distinctions between the different groups has me scratching my head. Does there really need to be a National Institute of Oilseed Products, a National Oilseed Processors Association, an Institute of Shortening and Edible Oils, a National Association of Margarine Manufacturers, margarine is made with oil, and the Association for Dressing and Sauces, also known as oils and maybe some dairy thrown in? There's an association for pizza, an association for pie, an association for tortillas, and an association for pasta. Schlumpia? No association. Give it time, people. Give it time. I won't get into the nitty-gritty details of how these guys affect what you eat now, because I've done it elsewhere when discussing the Dietary Guidelines for Americans and the American Meat Institutes and National Pork Boards lobbying to get sustainability concerns out of the guidelines. They also pressured the government to de-emphasize recommendations to consume less meat in favor of a more obtuse recommendation. If you look at the evolution of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans since its inception, the recommendation for consuming meat went from decreased consumption, to choose meats which reduce saturated fat intake, to choose lean meat, to have two to three servings of meat a day. That evolution was brought to you by the constant pestering of the meat and feed lobby. Now, take a look at a highly processed, highly composed food like a Papa John's meat lover's pizza. Pizza is a competitive business and shaving pennies off expense is how you play the game. Here's a list of lobbyists who get their thingies in a ringer if anything happens that shifts the cost of making a pizza by fractions of a penny. The American pizza community. Doesn't that sound nice? They're a community. But wait, there's more! U.S. Grains Council has something to say about the crust. The sauce is brought to you by the Florida Tomato Committee, who gets justifiably, in my opinion, upward price pressure from a labor union of sorts called the Committee of Immokalee Workers. The cheese is the concern of the American Cheese Society and American Dairy Products Institute. The sausage, pepperoni, etc. North American Meat Processors Association. Don't forget sugar and spice. It's in there. American Spice Trade Association, National Association of Flavor and Food, Corn Refiners again, and Sugar Association. As if that wasn't enough, that odd-shaped box that saves a few square centimeters from cardboard was designed by the Institute of Packaging Pros. Go fightin' wood pulps! Does their lobbying over price affect health? Of course. If you paid the real cost of that pizza instead of the cost subsidized by your taxes, slave-conditioned labor that provide the raw materials, and your Papa points, you might remove Papa John from speed dial. Is speed dial even still a thing? I don't think this kind of stuff surprises anyone. What may surprise you is that this lobbying is constant, even associations that have nothing to do with food impact food policy. Of course, health-oriented associations, such as the American Diabetes Association, might have something to say about the American diet. 
Well, here's just an example of the kind of thing you might not expect. The USDA establishes standard terminology for all kinds of things. When you hear that an egg is large, extra large, or jumbo, that's based on specifications dictated by the USDA. Raisins have three sizes, and they're defined by what percentage of a batch of raisins can fit through a specific hole. If 95% of the raisins in a batch fit through a 9.5 millimeter hole and no less than 70% pass through a hole that's 8.7 millimeters, that batch gets classified as midget raisins. Think about it. It was someone's job to develop this definition. But size classifications affect pricing, and the California Raisin Growers Association cares about prices. A few years ago, the association representing the little people of America lobbied with the USDA to give midget-sized foods a different label. The little people of America are sensitive to the term midget, and the Raisin Administrative Committee of the USDA complied. Yes, there really is a Raisin Administrative Committee in the USDA. But this kind of change doesn't come for free. Documentation needs to be altered, equipment needs to be relabeled, and so on. This tiny change could have an impact on the people who grow grapes, process them into raisins, package and label and inspect them, and each might have a say. And the more they just talk about it, the more money it costs us, the consumer and taxpayer. Now in this example, the trade associations that would lobby against this change due to the inconvenience or cost chose not to. They did a cost-benefit analysis and decided there's little to gain from speaking against a claim of offensive language, unless you're the Washington football team. The influence associations have on our food policy is a subject I'm only starting to tackle. I figure it's a great way to channel my guilty pleasure, my guilt by association. These guys are out there, though, and in the drama of health theater, they may not have a lot of lines or time on stage, but they're central to driving the plot. There are so many more characters in this play, but I'll just mention one more. It's us. That's right, we're not spectators. We're the protagonists here. And it's our awareness of the characters' motivations, the plots and the subplots, that decide whether this play is gonna be depressing, amusing, or inspiring. I wanna thank everyone for listening this deep to another solo episode of The Foodcast. More great guests are coming, but if you have any topic suggestions, I'd love to hear them. These can be either guest ideas, ideas for stunts you want me to try, or questions you have for me. If you enjoy the foodcasts and want to keep them coming, please subscribe, share, and review on iTunes, or your listening medium of choice. And with that, I'll leave the trade associations and the cities of medicine behind. But for the health media, remember what your old pal Davey H. always says. This is my quest, despite hot cover stars. No matter how touched up, hiding surgery scars. To throw challenge flags at their outrageous claims. To uncover deceit by the sponsors of sickness and pain. And I know when the next issue's here flip page by page that my face will turn beet red and flush as my mind fills with rage.
difference at all do you have a health pet peeve also if so then please give me a call if so then please give me a call. And I'll try my hardest never to sing again on this show, especially after that Peter Brady voice cracking thing that you heard. Talk to you next time.